You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. My guest today is Professor Anil Seth. Anil is a cognitive and computational neuroscientist at Sussex University. Anil's scientific work has been cited more than 27,000 times. Anil is the editor-in-chief of the Neuroscience of Consciousness and his latest book, Being New, A New Science of Consciousness, is out now. Anil, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. David Chalmers uh, famously propagated the term the hard problem of consciousness that kind of related to these difficulties that we had in explaining perhaps why we have this, you know, subjective awareness at all as opposed to being these kind of non-feeling robots. Um, but you use the term the real problem of consciousness. Uh, why is that? So that we can actually make progress in understanding what is a really deep mystery. I think David Chan is, is right to point out the apparent challenge, the apparent mystery that is that appears when we ask ourselves, how is it that a complicated piece of biological machinery, really complicated, brains are very complicated things, but they're ultimately they're physical systems, right? They're made of stuff. How is it that any kind of stuff can give rise to a conscious experience, like the redness of red or the feeling of pain, or the, you know, the, the, just the experience of being you, any kind of experience at all. It doesn't seem the sort of thing that could ever be explained in terms of stuff happening in brains and bodies. That's the, the hard problem is to explain how do you cross that gap. Um, and it is, it is a challenge. But if you kind of face it head on, I don't think you get anywhere. It's like about you know, 150 years ago when people were wondering about life. You know, could life be explained by physics and chemistry and biology? People thought not. They thought, well, we need a a spark of life, an elan vital. And that didn't go anywhere. And that wasn't the answer to, to understanding life. Life does turn out to be a property of physical systems. We just needed new ways of thinking about it. So the real problem that I talk about, um, it's really, really, it's what a lot of neuroscientists do anyway. It's just putting a, a different term on it, which is trying to draw connections between things happening in the brains and things happening in our conscious experience. So rather than trying to... Um, solve the whole problem head on we can ask ourselves like why is it that this particular kind of brain activity goes along with an experience of of seeing a sunset or of tasting a glass of wine or of feeling an emotion and i think if we do that which we can do with the scientific tools we have then this hard problem of consciousness won't be solved but it'll be dissolved gradually and i think you know we'll look back and we'll think oh actually yes consciousness even though it seems different and special, is in fact something that is fully continuous with our understanding of biology, of physics, of, of philosophy. You know, we are part of nature. Yeah. No, I love that. And I think that perhaps just so we can kind of, I guess, start from the bottom up, you know, I think some people, they can hear the word consciousness and they go, oh, you know. Blah, blah, blah. So I guess as, as kind of the simplest level, how would you perhaps define that? 
It's true. It's a very loaded term, actually. People talk about collective consciousness, raising consciousness in society, all of these kinds of things. They're all, right. they're all terms that are completely valid. But what I mean by it is really very simple. It's, it's what we lose when we fall into a dreamless sleep or, or even more profoundly if we have general anesthesia. It's what comes back when we wake up and, and come around again. It's really any kind of experience whatsoever. The, the redness of red, the, the taste of a wine, these are all conscious experiences. So it's not the same thing as being intelligent, as having language or, or memory. It's, it's really just the presence of, of subjective experience. It's what makes us different from just being biological objects. Yeah. And I think the next question I would ask, and I'm, um, <laughs> and it's a bit of an interesting question because I mentioned you've been cited 27,000 times as the editor in chief of the neuroscience of consciousness. But I wonder <laughs> is consciousness, is this vast mystery that, that people have talked about in uh, adjacent fields for, for, for millennia, is this out of the reach of empirical science or not? It's a really good question. And many people have said that it is. It's clearly approachable by science. So when I, you know, when I was starting out in this area about 30 years ago, I was strongly advised not to get into it. You know, it was a matter mm -hmm. of philosophy or, or even of theology. You know, it wasn't something that would, <laughs> would ever allow me to get a job or have a, a career. <laughs> um, and I think I was just very obstinate. I was also very lucky because the tide was changing. The beginning of neuroscience and the beginning of psychology, consciousness was the central phenomenon of course like what could be most obvious when we think about what brains and minds are are like it's well you know we're conscious that that was treated as the central problem and then it gradually got pushed away because of the suspicion that it was not within the reach of empirical science and now it's coming back so i think that empirical science you know, with, with a good amount of theory and philosophy as well you know, has a lot to say about consciousness. It's a very accessible mystery in some way. Now, we have, we have well-developed science about black holes on the other side of the galaxy. We have quantum physics, which looks at things that are unbelievably small. In this sense, the neuroscience of consciousness is quite easy. You know, brains are human scale, which is rather obvious because we've all got one inside our heads. But, you know, they're right here. They don't exist far away or at the other side of the universe. We have the technology to look inside brains when we're having different kinds of experience. So I think we can make a lot of progress. Whether we get all the way, I think there's a case for a bit of humility too. And maybe there are some things that will forever escape the kind of knowledge that science can generate. Whether consciousness falls into that category, that's where the humility comes in. I don't see any reason why it should, but I can't be completely confident that you know, once we understand, once we solve this real problem, maybe there's still going to be a, a bit of mystery left over. But the only way to, to know is to is to just go ahead and, and let's see. And I would love to kind of ask you because you mentioned you were advised against, as you said, the advised against kind of going into this topic. You know, you've thrown yourself into it. You you've made a, a very prominent career in it. What was there perhaps about this this kind of mystery that I guess kind of pushed you away from perhaps the, the naysayers to, to, for a lack of a better term. I mean, I, so I did follow the naysayers advice for a bit, to be honest. I, I, I did other things for a while during my PhD. I, I mainly worked in artificial intelligence and 
and related areas. Um, but I think fundamentally, the question never left me. It is just such a fascinating question. I mean, we all wonder whether we're a scientist or, or not. We all wonder at some point, you know, why am I me? What happens when I die? Who am I? And these questions, then they can kind of ramify into other questions. Like, do I have free will? Does the color red really exist? You know, things that I think we, we've all wondered about at some time or other. And these questions, they just didn't go away. And I was always worried in academia about studying something that got progressively narrower. There's always, this, you know, at school, you take a bunch of subjects and then later on you winnow it down to maybe three or four. And then at university, you take one. And I was just a bit worried that a career in science would be like that. So I'd end up knowing a lot about something nobody else cared about. And consciousness is kind of the antithesis of this. It's very multidisciplinary. I mean, we need philosophy, we need psychology, neuroscience, all of these things. And so I was attracted by that aspect of it as well. And then from about the mid-90s to 2000, 2000s, it, it became apparent that there was a renaissance in the mm. study of consciousness within neuroscience and psychology. So I was able to ride that wave a bit and contribute to it too. And, and so it's a mixture of, of obstinacy and, and luck. Yeah. I mean, there's so much I want to ask you about this topic, but I think perhaps one of the, I guess, places that we can kind of throw ourselves into it is, um, you mentioned earlier about, you know, about consciousness, you know, about how it kind of disappears when we're in, for instance, dreamless sleep. Um, so I'd love to kind of, I guess, start to get into the science of it. So I wonder, is it perhaps possible to quantify how, I guess, how conscious someone is, for instance, um, if someone has undergone a traumatic event or if they're under uh, general anesthesia against someone that's not, is it possible to kind of quantify how conscious someone is? You know, it's beginning to be, and I think this is a really exciting frontier of this research. Because it also emphasizes that it's not just sort of armchair philosophy. I mean, there's other suspicion about studying consciousness that, okay, it's, it's a great thing to do for our own interest, but what difference does it make in the world? And here already, we can see an area where it does make a difference. There are techniques being developed, um, which are the beginnings of what you might call consciousness meters. So they can put a number to how conscious somebody is when they're going under anesthesia or coming back or if they've had brain injuries, something like that. So it's clinically very useful already in the operating theater, in the neurology ward. And these measures work by, at the moment, the, the best ones work by looking at how different parts of the brain speak to each other. So it's not that consciousness is in one part of the brain only. Uh, it seems to be manifest in patterns of communication between different parts of the brain and by putting a number to how rich how dense these patterns of communication are we get a very rough measure of how conscious that person is it's still very early days but these measures work and i think that's that's encouraging very encouraging yeah i think this was going to be a question i was going to ask you is because i think that many people have perhaps gone in search of you know the the seat of the soul, you know, or the, the one place that perhaps consciousness could arise from. Um, so 
you know, from what you said there, it doesn't sound like you believe that there is just perhaps one seat of the soul, but perhaps there could be several different regions, networks. But where do you kind of stand on that? Yeah, very much in the with the latter interpretation. I think it's very tempting to think that there's a single place where it all comes together. One of my mentors, Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, talked mm -hmm. about the Cartesian theatre, like inheriting from the famous philosopher René Descartes, who really did think there was one place in the brain which was the seat of the soul. And he was wrong about, about that. Um, but it seems to us, in most of our daily life and our lived experience, like consciousness seems unified. Being a self seems one thing. Like There's, there's a first-person perspective I have on the world which seems to be slightly behind my eyes, maybe in the middle of my head somewhere. Everything seems to happen you know, at once for me, including the experience of being me itself. But I think this is not a good guide to how things actually are. I mean, a repeated theme in, in my work and in the book is, is challenging how things seem as a good guide to how they are. Things seem in our experience to be one way, but actually what's underpinning it what's going on can be quite different so even though it seems as though there might be just one single place where everything has to come together actually there's no need for that to to happen and there's no evidence that it does happen i think consciousness in the brain is something that is more distributed and is a property of many different regions working together not any single locus yeah and i think that there are sort of implications because I guess when I was thinking about it, you know, if consciousness was to arise from, just say, for instance, one part of the brain, like perhaps, let's say, the thalamus, um, you know, implicated in, um, you know, sensory motor signals or, you know, the prefrontal cortex, something involved in things like self-awareness, thinking, metacognition, decision-making, um, then as far as I know, these structures, they are only, you know, found in, uh, you know, vertebrates things like mammals or fish or birds reptiles um you know and, and that makes me think you know does that imply then that if this theory were true that things like invertebrates insects spiders mollusks uh, if they didn't have perhaps these higher order features that they wouldn't be conscious is it perhaps something there i mean it's a line of argument you can take i think there's a history of our thinking about consciousness which has been contaminated by the idea of human exceptionalism. We tend to, you know, have tended to over history, associate consciousness with things that we think are distinctively human and very special to us. I mean, this goes right back to Descartes, who, who really reserved consciousness for human beings. Souls were things that, that humans had, that other animals didn't have, very much aligned with the religious beliefs at, at, at the time. We've been misled by this human exceptionalism many times before. I mean, the earth isn't at the center of the universe, and we <laughs> are related to all other animals. So thinking, tying consciousness to human distinctive things, whether that's metacognition or, or, um, or language, I think is, is the wrong way to go. Uh, consciousness for me is much more likely to be widespread among other animals. And... Yes, indeed. If you focus on one part of the brain, then you might make wrong inferences about the distribution of consciousness. I think the key thing here is that we need to figure out not what regions are important, but why. You know, what are they doing? 
Because in a different kind of brain, whether it's an insect brain or a fish brain, you might find the same kinds of processes happening, but they're implemented by different brain structures. And so yes. we, you know, once we understand the, the, the mechanism, then we can generalize, I think, in a much more informative way to other species. And are there kind of any, I guess, consensus on how perhaps human consciousness differs from, for instance, uh, you know, other species consciousness? I think there's some broad consensus about some aspects. There's still a lot of disagreement, right? I mean, it's, right. It's still, there are still people <laughs> who would defend that only, maybe only primates and, and maybe only humans have a meaningful consciousness. And I mean, I find this is a, this is a rare view. I don't want to mischaracterize. I think that the broad consensus is that, let's say, at least among all mammals, that we find the basic brain mechanisms that are important for being conscious. But how consciousness might differ, let's say, between a human being and a cat or, or even a, a monkey, is really, really hard to say. Now, you can focus a little bit on the senses. You know, when if you see animals with different ways of interacting with the world, then you immediately know, well, there's there's probably a different kind of experience going on. But then there are other sorts of um, ways in which we encounter the world that we might take for granted that might be very different in other animals. So you know, a good example here is the sense of self. So we have a, an experience of being the subject of experience. We don't just experience the world. You know, I, I experience being me within the world. I mean, the book is all eventually about you know, what that sense of self looks like scientifically and philosophically. But one thing that humans do quite naturally after maybe a year or so is recognize themselves in the mirror. And adult humans have no problem. You know, we, we can see, oh yeah, that's, that's me in the mirror and not, not another creature. And that ability turns out to be pretty rare when you look beyond humans. It's not completely absent, but it's certainly not common. Monkeys don't do it at all, and despite being very similar in other ways. So that just hints at there's something quite different about what it would be like to be a monkey than, than what it's like to be a human. They're not just small furry people, but they are, <laughs> I think they're definitely conscious, but their way of being conscious is likely to be different. And then when you get further away, and I, I spent some time thinking about octopuses, actually spent some time with octopuses in a lab in, in Italy some years ago. If they have such different bodies, brains, sensory modalities, that trying to figure out what it might like to be an octopus is, is really mind-bending, very, very hard to do. You mentioned um, the self, you know, uh, being Anil or being Joe, and this is a topic that I kind of very much enjoy. And I think for you know, if you perhaps said the the person walking down the street, I think that perhaps they might, you know, think of this as, you know, there's a, a driver just kind of watching out through the eyes, you know, someone sat at the wheel just kind of, uh, you know, imploring kind of everyday existence. Do you kind of see the self in that way? Or do you kind of see the self in, you know, as a perhaps as a, as a bundle of perceptions? How, how do you kind of view that? Yeah, as, as this kind of bundle of perceptions, it's a very nice phrase that, that goes back to the Scottish philosopher David Hume. And it's, it's really challenging to take this perspective. In fact, I think it's one of the things that, that has made me think about my life most differently. 
by studying consciousness is how the self emerges, what it means to be a self. You're right that there's this there's this sort of everyday appeal to thinking of the self as this essence of you or me that's perched behind the eyes, somewhere inside the skull, peering out at the world through the eyes, figuring out what's going on, deciding what to do next, and then moving the muscles so that something happens. You know, this buys into this whole um, idea of there being a single place where consciousness comes together. But then you've got to ask, if there is this like little me inside my head, a homunculus it's often called, well, what's inside that? How does that work? And you get this kind of infinite regress um, where you don't explain anything. And I think a much richer way to think about the self, and if this is a way of thinking about the self that's not limited to science. I mean, it's been there in various spiritual traditions for a long time, especially in Buddhism, is that the self is a process. It's a perception too. It's not the thing that does the perceiving. The experience of self is a whole variety of perceptions of the body, of how the body is in the world, of, of memories. Um, it's, it's a whole collection of things that typically are experienced as being bound together. You know, I, normally, I experience myself as just like a single person. But we know from psychiatry, from neurology, even from everyday life sometimes, that the experience of self can fragment, it can splinter. You know, I can forget things, but I still have emotions. Um, and in the lab, these, these dissociations can get very dramatic. So to think of the self as, as something the brain does, it's another way in which the brain is interpreting sensory signals. But in this case, they come largely from the body. I think that's much closer to what our neuroscientific view of self is. And it doesn't deny you know, the everyday reality of, of being a self in the same way that if I look outside my window, you know, I still see colors. You know, I see a blue sky even though I know there's no actual blueness out there, you know, I still have the experience of seeing blue. So I still experience being a self with free will with all these things, even though I might suspect that what's going on under the hood is actually quite different. Yeah. No, I think this is a great place because you kind of teased us at the end of it to perhaps jump into some uh, perception and sensation stuff. Um, so, you know, the term controlled hallucination uh, you know, I feared you discuss very eloquently uh, this, and I think you know the average person listening to this. This this term might turn a few heads. Um, so I wonder, perhaps, you know, what does this mean that perhaps everything that we experience is this kind of probabilistic uh, brain best guess? It's a tricky term, and it's it's not perfect. Um, I think. It's almost, it's very, very hard to come up with the right metaphor for this. And this, by the way, this idea of controlled hallucination, I, I got it from somebody else who got it from somebody else. It's got a long history too. And the reason I find it appealing is because it, it picks out the idea that the way we experience the world comes more from the inside out than the outside in. So again, let's, let's think about what, what it just feels like to be conscious, it feels like we kind of read the world out, that there's a world out there with colors and shapes and people and places, and it just pours itself almost directly into our minds through our senses. And that perception is this process of processing incoming sensory information. In fact, that's the picture that when I was starting out studying psychology and neuroscience, that's the kind of picture you're given too. 
perception is this kind of bottom-up process as information progresses into the brain. But I think a more satisfying, more accurate view of how perception works is that the brain is constantly making its best guesses, making inferences about what's out there and using sensory data just to calibrate these best guesses. It's trying to do a process in, in math, we call it Bayesian inference. It's trying to, on the basis of uncertain information, figure out what caused that information. So one way to do this is for the brain to continually try to predict what the incoming sensory information is going to be like. And the key move here is the idea that what we experience is not the sensory data sort of modulated by the predictions. Now, what we experience are the predictions modulated by the sensory data. So our experience is this kind of inside-out, top-down, active, creative interpretation of sensory data. So this is why controlled hallucination, I think, is a useful term, because colloquially, we think about hallucinations as perceptions that come from within, you know, when I experience something that's not there or that somebody else doesn't. And that perception in the, in the here and now is, is something different, you know, a reading out of the world. But I think there's a, a, a really strong continuity between these two kinds of phenomena. So perception in the here and now also comes from the inside out, but it's just calibrated, controlled by sensory data. So it's useful. It's not that we make everything up and everything is you know, a figment of our imagination. No, not at all. What we perceive is very, very calibrated to the world in ways that help us survive, that guide our behavior. But it's not identical to what's there. We never see things as they really are. We only ever see things as, as we are. If my understanding of what you just said today is right, please feel free to, to jump in and correct me. So we receive sensory input. Um, and then from this, our brain then tries to perhaps make sense of it. So sensation comes first, perception then follows. Um, well, hold on. So I'm going to jump in the first time. Yeah, I please, think, please jump in. I, I, th I think it's, it's almost impossible to know which comes first. You know, there's ah. always this dance. So every new bit of sensory information that comes in is always in the context of the brain's predictions at that moment or the moment before. And likewise, every prediction the brain is making is always informed by the sensory information that's come in you know, before that. So there's this kind of circular causality, this endless dance between prediction and prediction error. And they're right. not split up into discrete, like this comes first and then that comes second. That's interesting because one, one of the things that I was kind of thinking about as you were kind of uh, talking was and I've got to say I'm I'm not entirely sure if if this is true, but it would make sense to me if it was. It was something, and I read before I I forget what what the book was, but it was something like that our brains were something uh, the 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 output from our visual systems was something like a hundred milliseconds after when the sensory input hit our system. Is that is that right at all or no? Or I'm, it's it's partly right. I mean there are there are time delays. I mean if you yes. Like, Stuff takes time, so sound, sound waves take it take some time. I mean, think about you know, when um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but you know, somebody slams a car door uh, a street away. You kind of hear it and see it as a single event, right? Yeah. Um, but the sound has taken longer to get to your brain than the light has, and then once it's in the brain, 
there's many different processing stages that information goes through. So all this, all this kind of takes time, yet we, we feel that we're experiencing the world in, in real time. Yeah. Um, and I think this is another clue that what we experience is not some sort of on-the-fly edited footage provided by our sensory cameras you know, on our eyes and our ears and so on. It's, it's that the brain has this constantly evolving prediction about what's going on and these are just updated by the sensory signals, which may come in at different times according to their modality. But we experience this overall prediction about what's going on. And you know, that is, of course, a single event. If somebody slams a car door, then the best explanation for that, the sound and the light that come in, is that yeah, there was a single event of somebody slamming the door. So that's what we experience. I guess in simplest terms, we were kind of perhaps seeing, hearing things in the past. Uh, then our brain kind of makes this this prediction. And I remember watching a BBC documentary on this Himba tribe out in Africa. They, they don't have the word for the colour blue. Mm-hmm. So for them, blue was kind of a variant of the colour green. Uh, so when they were showing them a picture of blue and green, they couldn't distinguish between them. Mm-hmm. It's such a fascinating thing. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, and I wonder kind of if that ties into this prediction kind of uh, model that you're talking about, as well as also optical illusions. Um, I wonder if that kind of has any uh, stance or weight in the kind of model that you discuss. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to, on the optical illusion thing first, I mean, th- these are these are a great kind of gateway, um, well, gateway psychological drug to the study of neuroscience, maybe, because they're so fascinating, right? I mean, we, we see things... It looks to be one way, but then they can be clearly demonstrated to be another way. We see colors that aren't there and so on. And it's, it's, easy, it's, it's perfectly fine just to have these illusions and use them as like, wow, you know, that's a surprise. But I think they're really informative as well because they really show that what the brain is doing is, is using its prior expectations about how things normally are, like it's prior knowledge about the structure of the world to shape how it interprets sensory signals and optical illusions play with that so you know a good example is there's something called the um uh the muller illusion where two two lines look different lengths but they're exactly the same length and they have arrowheads on them going in different directions right. um, so why do they look different lengths well, one good explanation for why they look different lengths is because the brain is sort of has prior knowledge about how three-dimensional structures work. So when the arrows go one way, it's as if that line ought to be further away. And so we sort of experience it as bigger because the brain knows that things that are further away you know, are sort of bigger than the amount of space that they take up on our retina. I'm I'm getting distracted by memories of I think was it Father Dougal and so on saying big things. <laughs> this is far away and this is big. There was a <laughs> piece of a piece of dialogue from Father Ted about that um, a while ago. But now visual illusions I think are this really useful clue, and we can study them. You know, we can study by seeing. Um, you know, they're, they're like little screwdrivers that we can go in and tweak get the visual system to reveal how it constructs what in our everyday life seems to be a seamless representation of reality. 
And then on the on the other thing, on the I didn't know about this African tribe. It's it's funny because there's a there's the opposite example as well. So I think it's relatively well established now that people who have Russian as their native language have more words for blue than most other languages and are able to perceive these different shades of blue as well. So language and our, the way we carve up the world linguistically and the way we experience it perceptually seem to be very intimately related. I mean, this is a, a beautiful old idea called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that the way we think, the way we speak, isn't just a description of the world that we inhabit subjectively. It, it partially shapes that world. I think the, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Arrival, the science science fiction film. I've never seen it. No, it's never it's seen a it. wonderful film that plays with this idea about how language shapes thought and, and shapes perception. And a, and a corollary of this, an implication of this, is that we all experience the world slightly differently. And I think this, again, is really counterintuitive because it seems as though we just see the world as it is. You know, it seems as though I don't, the way I experience the world doesn't seem to depend on the particularities of my own brain or my, you know, my personal history, but it does depend on that. And um, sometimes this is very obvious. There was that image a few years ago of that photo of a dress that half the, the dress, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, blue and black for some. I don't know how it was for you. Whether it was blue and black or white and gold, it was white and gold for me. So you, yeah, you were in the <laughs> other half of the world for me. <laughs> but that went. I mean, that went crazy, didn't it? Because, and I think it went crazy partly because. People just found it really surprising that when faced with the same image, you know, the same sensory information, that people could experience it so radically differently. Like I see it one way, so how is it possible that you could see it another way? And I think the wider lesson there, which got a little bit overlooked, never really took off, is that that's happening all the time. It's just that the differences aren't usually that dramatic, so we don't notice them. We still use this. We still get away with using the same words. And um, if I can just make a little plug Please. here, we, we, have this, we have this experiment called the Perception Census, which I've been doing uh, for the last year or so, which is really trying to map out this hidden landscape of perceptual diversity of how we each experience a unique inner world, uh, because not that much is known about it. And what we've done is we've, it's, it's a sort of citizen science thing, so anyone can do this, and I'd really encourage people listening if they want to learn more about perception and, and, and get the warm glow of contributing to, to science to check it out. It's called the Perception Census. All you need is your own computer and it takes you through a whole series of fun interactive illusions and little um, experiments uh, designed to figure out how you experience the world in relation to other people. And we've already had about 30,000 people take part. So this is going to be a real landmark study um and we are still collecting data up until about october sometime so if you'd like to give it a go we'd be super grateful every person taking part really really does help and the feedback we've been getting is people really enjoy taking part too because they learn about perception and their own way of perceiving the world one thing that popped into my mind as you were discussing that was about how language kind of shapes our reality. He was at a, a chat with uh, Ellen Langer, the former Harvard uh, psychologist, and she was telling me that she was very careful with the, the words that she used. And for instance, you know, 
telling herself that if she failed an exam, although I doubt she failed many exams, that she would tell herself that, for instance, instead of telling herself that she was a failure, she would tell herself that she was demotivated because she realized this kind of, that words have different inferences and that the words that we use can kind of shape the meaning attached and how we then proceed. I wonder if you that's kind of ties into what you're discussing with it. I think it does. That's an interesting story. I think for me, the relevance is that words are powerful conveyors of context. Yeah. And everything that we experience is all about context. Like we never experience anything in isolation of the context in which it's in. And this this is true whether it's a single auditory pitch or you know our, our emotional reaction to screwing up an exam. Context is everything. Just envision again the way we experience colors is not a direct readout of how lights reflect surface. It's all in the context of the ambient lighting. It's why when you take a, a white piece of paper from indoors to outdoors, it still looks white, even though the light hitting your eyes is very different now because our brain is taking into account the lighting context, the ambient light, whether it's yellowish indoors or bluish outside. By the way, this is probably why the dress image works because some people's brains are interpreting the image as being taken indoors um, and other people's brains are interpreting the image as being taken outdoors. And that, that shift in our assumed context changes how we experience the image, whether it's a blue-black dress or a, or a white-gold dress. Um, so context matters. And yes, language is a very powerful uh, purveyor of context, probably for more things rather than other things. You know, If I look at a color, I can't just tell myself that I'm seeing purple rather than green. And that, and it, that it doesn't work like that. But certainly for things like framing our emotional responses to situations, you know, an emotion in the way I think about it, and it's, it's not a new idea again, is not just a, a given, you know, certain things happen and that's the emotion. An emotion is a context-rich interpretation of what's happening in the body at any particular time. And it's an idea that goes back to William James in the, in the 19th century. It, the, an emotion is a perception of physiological changes in the body in the context of everything else that's going on so here you can see a real role for for reframing in terms of language i mean i i we all do this i think we realize that like oh i'm not angry i'm just hungry (laughs) (laughs) And, and by reframing it that way you actually change the way you feel too so it's again it's not a redescription it changes the the emotional content of what's going on in our experience when we change the context. I love that, man. Um, I'd love to kind of just switch gears. And you mentioned that you did some work in your PhD on um, AI. Uh, I wonder if you've kind of thought about, uh, I'm sure you have, about (laughs) consciousness and um, AI. Could we build, for instance, a conscious AI machine? Yeah, no, this is a good switch of gears because it's very current right now with so much attention being paid to AI. Uh, yeah, I did my PhD kind of in the the intersection of AI and, and philosophy and, and what was what still is called artificial life. So can we generate lifelike things artificially? And at the time, AI was was it, you know, it was active, but there was this sort of pessimism about it that it wasn't really going anywhere. There were always these promises that the systems would would work and practically useful, but they never quite lived up to that promise and that's that's really changed over the last 
few years and especially over the last couple of years with especially with these language models like yeah. GPT they are changing society in ways that I don't think we've quite come to grips with when you think more about that collectively um, and one of the aspects of this debate that has been I think striking in some sense for its lack of sophistication is the relationship between AI and consciousness it really goes back to some of the early parts of our conversation, like the tendency to associate consciousness with things that we think are distinctively human. So there's been this idea around for a while, and we see it in science fiction films as well, like HAL 9000 in 2001, where consciousness is a sort of function of intelligence. You know, that as AI gets smarter, at some point the lights come on, and it's not only intelligent, but it also has subjective experience. It's also aware. And I think this assumption is really poorly founded. You know, and I think it derives again from this human exceptionist tendency to associate consciousness with intelligence because we think we're intelligent as humans. Intelligence is very different. Intelligence is very broadly, it's about doing the right thing at the right time. And consciousness is about any kind of subjective experience. So there may be some forms of consciousness that require human like intelligence, but I don't think you require human-like intelligence in order to be conscious. So I don't think it's, basically, I don't think it's either necessary or sufficient. And so what this means is, as AI gets smarter and smarter, we will we'll inhabit a world where these systems are very, very good at playing on our anthropomorphic tendencies to project qualities into them. So people already think that large language models understand things and and you know, may even be conscious. There was this engineer from Google who thought that um, last year and got um, got fired for saying so. So we'll, we'll, we'll be surrounded by systems and we will be unable to resist the temptation to treat them as if they're conscious. But under the hood, they won't be. Or at least there'll be a large amount of uncertainty. Now, I think consciousness is really fundamentally related to our nature as living systems. Yeah. So I don't think you get consciousness just by programming a neural network in the right way. I might be wrong. Other theories say, would say that you can. So again, we need a bit of humility. We, we just don't know. But there's certainly no reason to assume that consciousness just comes along for the ride as, as AI gets smarter. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's a very, very uh, reasonable uh, viewpoint. And I think there is a lot of... Uh, delirium around this topic at the moment, <laughs> understandably so. Um, but uh, but there's a few other things that I would kind of like to ask because one, one of the things there that you know you mentioned was obviously consciousness being related to this kind of living system. And um, I'm kind of interested, and uh, I'm just going to say the question boldly, do you think that there is even a 1% chance that consciousness could outlive death? Mm, no, I think there's a much less than 1% chance for that to happen. I think everything that we know points in the direction of consciousness for each of us, each individual, being totally dependent on our brains being basically intact and, and, and alive. Once our brains stop, we stop. 
and I th- something like general anesthesia is such a, a powerful window onto this because it's basically the closest we can get to death without dying. And consciousness stops. And it's not just like sleep. When we're asleep, we're always aware of some time having passed. We might be confused if we're jet lagged or, or ill or something, but but we know it's been some number of hours. But under anesthesia, you are just not there. You, know, you go under and then you're back and no time seems to have passed at all. And the bit in the middle is a premonition of the oblivion, I think, that death uh, brings. And I want to just say something else here because I, I don't think this is a particularly depressing view either. Some people might think it's depressing if, if, you're, if you're clinging on to some possibility of, of immortality. But there's a weird asymmetry that we have with respect to not existing. We don't generally tend to worry that much about all the time we weren't there before we were born, which is you know, many billions of years, and certainly in human existence, hundreds of thousands of years. But we're much more worried about the time after we die. So there's this odd, it's, in a way, it's, it's somewhat justified because you know, things that happen after we die, we've had some influence on, whereas we, by definition, haven't had any influence on things before we were born. But still, you know, the idea that oblivion is, is inherently scary, I think is, I think we're just not looking at it right. I mean, there, there's a quote I use in the book, which, which is a, a title of a novel by Julian Barnes, which is all about mortality, and it's called Nothing to be Frightened of. And I love that because it's, it's, you know, it's got this beautiful double meaning to it. Yeah, we're all frightened of nothing, but really there's nothing to be frightened of. Very, very well said. Um, there's a, a, an idea for consciousness after death. There's also the idea of a soul or a spirit. Is there kind of any distinction to be made by there, or do you think they're kind of one and the same? No, I think there's some really interesting distinctions. And here, I think there's, there's a lot of mileage to be gotten in, in actually close reading of, of different cultures about their beliefs about death and, and the soul and so on. Because I think certainly in the West, there's this idea of the soul, which is actually quite a recent idea of, of you know, something that, that maintains the essence of you as a person and maintains essence of personality and that could survive you know, the death of the body. But in, in other religions and even I think in Christianity in, in previous era, in eras, these aspects of the soul, they weren't so prominent. And it's just there's, there's something, you know, it points to some sort of like consciousness force as if there might be a life force that animates living things. And in Hinduism, half my family's Indian. And the concept of soul there is, is Atman. And it's much more closely tied with breath than with, let's say, rationality, as, as it often is in the West. You know, so, so the West, we have this, this idea of the mind being separate from the body, you know, Descartes again to blame for this problem <laughs> of dualism. Um, but in Hinduism, there is still this idea of transubstantiation, that there is this you know, survival after death. Of, of, but it's not supposed to be the survival of that particular person. You know, it's, it's something much more general. Now, I don't agree with that either, but what I do like about that concept of soul is how it's tied to something much more fundamentally biological the breath and 
in my own thinking about this. And it's interesting because it's not somewhere I expected to end up. Now, I think that's one of the nice things about this, this area of research is that you, you, you realize that your ideas change as you do more. And of course they should, because it would be really boring if you just ended up thinking exactly the same thing after 20 years <laughs> as you did at the outset. So in, in hindsight, of course it's a good thing. But you know, the place I didn't expect to end up was this recognition that the most fundamental levels of what it means to be a human self and, and probably a non-human self as well are connected with how the brain perceives the regulation of its body to be going. And this is something that goes right down into individual cells almost. You know, the, brain, the, the purpose, the, the reason we have brains, the reason evolution endowed any organism with a brain is, is not to write poetry or solve crossword puzzles. It's to keep the body alive. And when we try and articulate what it might feel like at the sort of experiential level when the brain is doing this it's just this sense of how good a job the brain is at keeping things going physiologically well that might be as close to the experience of in soulness you know of being a soul as i can think and it's and it's surprisingly aligned with some of these other ideas of soul as connected with with our you know our imperative, our biological imperative to stay alive with these fundamental biological rhythms that maintain us, that keep us from sort of dissolving into mush. And, and that's, I think, it's something that I, I'd love to spend uh, more time thinking about, actually, because it, it, is, it is true that we, we inherit these intellectual traditions, whether we realize it or not, particular assumptions we make about the nature of consciousness, the nature of self, the nature of soul. And I think there are ways to, to bring them together where science and some of the more spiritual traditions can complement each other. In that sense, from what you described there, it sounded to me like a scientific worldview kind of almost led to a a spiritual worldview. I think, as you probably could tell, I, I'm not really um, in favour of of pitting these two ways yeah. of being against each other. You know, I think it's a science, especially when it's a, a science of consciousness, it is inherently spiritual because it is mm-hmm. about our way of being in the world, what it means to you know, what it means to be a self, what what. What we end up thinking about things like emotion, what we end up thinking about things like free will, are intimately tied to the kinds of issues that we might otherwise think of as spiritual. You know, is, is, is every action predetermined? You know, where, where do morals fit in, and so on? So, I don't think you can separate these ways of encountering the world. And I think there's there's a lot to be gained from figuring out how they interact in a kind of non-dogmatic way. You know, you don't, you don't get anywhere by saying, well, you know, science says this and, and the Bible says this, so which is right? I mean, no, that, that doesn't, like sometimes, if it comes down to that, then yeah, science is usually right. You know, the earth is a lot older <laughs> than 6,000 years and so on. But that's the wrong kind of conversation to be having. You know, I think the right kind of conversation to be having is, what do we think about the nature of the self? What, you know, what is a self? Um, and there, these two perspectives can be much more complementary.
Yeah, man, I love that. Um, I just got a couple more questions for you. Um, one of the ones that I think has also kind of become very, very popular, um, not just, I guess, in, uh, you know, the, the cultural society, but also in terms of uh, empirical science, there's also now a lot of studies going on in this field, is uh, psychedelics. And I'd be interested to know your kind of thoughts on how psychedelic drugs, hallucinogens, how perhaps they may change the nature of conscious experience. There's a lot of excitement about psychedelics these days. Um, I think perhaps in some ways, maybe a little too much. Um, but it's one of those issues where the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth you know, from these things being totally outlawed to being the zeitgeist. And we're, we're in a bit of a zeitgeist moment now. What's clear to me is that psychedelics are a really important tool for understanding the nature of consciousness because they're, they're another manipulation. You know, you give somebody this substance and chemically it's pretty well known what these substances do, you know, where they act in the brain, what kind of biochemical effect they have. You know, they work on these so-called subtype of serotonin receptors, the classic psychedelics. So one level, it's pretty well known what happens. But then at another level, there's this radical change in conscious experience. You know, things are very different in the midst of a psychedelic experience. And this is useful in two ways. Firstly, I think it's useful in it, un, it challenges some of the assumptions we might fall into about the way conscious experiences always have to be. Like this, the experience of self can be very different under a psychedelic where we realize, oh, no, the self doesn't always have to be there. It's not a thing. You know, it can it can change. It can even go away entirely in experiences of ego dissolution. So we can get, a, I think, a clearer view on the nature of conscious experiences at the level of experience. Um, but then, of course, we can also map between, you know, we, we can see what's changing in the brain. So we change... We, in psychedelics experience changes and then patterns of information flow in the brain change too and by looking at how those changes correlate with changes in experience we can learn about how consciousness in general is shaped by activity in the brain so i think it's very useful it's completely separate from a lot of the current excitement is of course about the potential medical um possibilities for treatment of things like depression here i think there is a lot of potential but i just worry a bit that we've the pendulum swung a little too far and people have become you know, a bit overly optimistic about you know what is a very powerful treatment but might not be for everybody might not work for everybody certainly might not be the panacea that sometimes it's described as you mentioned a study that everyone can take part in um, which we're going to link below. We're going to link to, uh, as well to your to your great new book and your TED talk, which I've watched many a time. Um, man, tell these guys where they can connect with you, what work you're up to, um, and anything else you'd love our audience to check out. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. So, yeah, I'm, I'm based at the University of Sussex. Um, the easiest way to keep up with what I'm doing is on my webpage, which is anilseth.com. Fairly straightforward. And um, yeah, I mean, my lab at Sussex, we, we try to bring lots of different disciplines together. So I'm working on a one hand in some fairly detailed mathematical approaches to measuring how different parts of the brain speak to each other and 
and whether we can make sense of concepts like emergence mathematically, which which is you know, a whole nother conversation, you know, all the way up to some of these large scale psychology projects like the perception sensors, which we talked about uh, before. But the whole the, the thread that runs through all of them is really trying to build bridges between what happens in the brain and what happens in our conscious experience. So they make this kind of, you know, it's not just correlations. We want to explain one in terms of the other. Another thing just to, just to bring to attention is um, in the last two years, the perception sense is actually part of this, but I got involved in this really ambitious art science project called Dream Machine, uh, which was in four, it was in Cardiff and it was in London, Belfast and Edinburgh last summer. And what we did with a collection of artists and architects and musicians, we had John Hopkins, a musician, um, working with us. And we developed a, a kind of an experience where we use stroboscopic light to give people very powerful visual hallucinations. So it it's, follows on a little bit from our discussion of psychedelics. I mean, it's not a psychedelic experience, but it is a kind of experience that makes people recognize in the first person, the power of their own minds and, and brains. Um, and so we're, we're hoping to take this Dream Machine project forward and tour it around the UK and, and internationally. So have a look out for that too. We will link to everything below. And I can attest that you do have a very beautifully developed website. So I will certainly uh, <laughs> link both. I was very impressed. Um, the question that we sign off all of our podcasts with, which I think is very prevalent of the conversation that we've had today, is what makes a life worth living? I, I knew it'd be an easy question. Um, <laughs> what makes a life worth living? You know, I I think it's I think it's I'm trying not to be too trite here. You know, I think if you, it's easy enough to say if it has meaning. I think that's very important. But what does what does having meaning mean? You know, I think, I think if you can greet each day with a certain amount of enthusiasm. And uh, the approach, wait, a, a belief that you can get something useful done that day. Um, then I think the sum of that makes for a good life. I don't think it's, you know, and this is this is something I think people say a lot, right? A good life is not a life that where you tot everything up at the end and you realize you know you've come out on it's a life. A good life is lived during during the living of it it needs to be happening every day it's not something you try and reach at the end of it so it's something that unfolds when you have a purpose when you when you have a mission and that can mean very different things for different people but i think fundamentally that's what we all need Neil, thank you so much for coming on the show what a pleasure this was thank you joe it's been a real pleasure to talk to you 